Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it meets us in the darkness and it shows us the light of your gospel grace. I pray as we reflect on your word, Lord, that your gospel would be clear to your people for their encouragement and upbuilding, despite my own inadequacies. May you be glorified in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Advent can be hard, especially for kids. It might be hard for some of you. The days are growing shorter, uh, the weather is growing colder, and as Christmas approaches, it, con- it continually feels more distant. Um, kids don't like to wait, do they? Any of your kids love to wait? They're just really good at it. Any of you kids really enjoy waiting? No, absolutely not. But Advent is the season of delayed gratification, something our same-day shipping culture has lost the ability to cope with. Steve, I'm going to switch mics. But you know, I love Advent. Advent is my favorite season of the church year. You heard me say this last year if you were here, and you're going to hear me say it again next year. It's my favorite season precisely because it teaches us to wait, and it acknowledges the reality of our waiting that we are all enduring. You know, growing up, presents would accumulate under our Christmas tree. Um, and, throughout the, and it would happen throughout December. So it wouldn't just be the night before Christmas Eve. It would, be, um, it would be working for a while. And I'd have to see them every morning and deal with them being under the tree and unopened. Every morning, I'd go and shake them. Fortunately, family knew not to give me anything breakable. Um, and gave me lots of Legos, which I've talked about before. So I'd I'd shake them. Um, But I'd learn to endure and even enjoy the anticipation of eventually opening them up. Having to wait helped me mature. I grew as I learned to delay gratification and experience contentment knowing that the joy would ultimately arrive only after we celebrated the greatest gift of all on Christmas Eve. 
you know, wrapped presents like the ones on this stage. Uh, some might be confused. Why do you have a bunch of presents? Are you just making this a materialistic church holiday? But no, they're a wonderful image of what Advent is all about. And they're beautiful. I'm just so grateful for the team of folk who did a wonderful job decorating this stage. It gives me great joy every year. But they're a wonderful picture of what this Advent season represents. It's a concealed hope. A longing for future joy and blessing. A longing for future restoration. A sure promise of grace as yet unseen and concealed behind the wrappings. It's grace which meets us in the midst of present difficulty and present suffering as we await Christmas, the coming of Christ Jesus into our lives and this world. We are waiting, and in our waiting, we are hoping, hoping for joy when the waiting is done. Advent, in many ways, is the story of the Christian life. It's the story of the church. It's our story individually. I think this is why the theme of waiting is so pervasive in Scripture as a whole, from beginning to end. But nowhere is it such a focus as in the book of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The key verse of our passage is verse 4. It's a statement of confidence that emerges from within life's disappointments and hardships to proclaim God's enduring faithfulness to those who wait. It says, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That is the hope of Advent. This is an Advent exclamation. Help us wait with hope, Lord. As we explore Isaiah's beautiful but challenging prayer in Isaiah 64, my hope is to help you get in the Advent spirit. Not to rush Christmas, but to embrace the now, growing in the process so that our joy at Christmas might be full and unhindered. My message today from this passage is that Advent reminds us that we can wait for our Savior with certain hope because his faithfulness will never fail. You can wait with hope because God is faithful. So what does it mean to wait for Jesus? This is a phrase that's often used in scripture and it can be very confusing to us because it seems passive. Isaiah 64, it comes in the middle of a prayer that Isaiah offers on behalf of God's people. It's this corporate prayer of lament and repentance and longing and supplication. Um, they were about to go through exile in Babylon. This is the second half of Isaiah. It's looking forward um, to the exile of God's people into Babylon. The people had been wandering from God in their hearts, and they were about to go through intense hardship. What stands out in the first three verses is that waiting is active. Christian waiting is active. It is never passive. When we think about what it means to wait for the Lord, we can make the mistake of assuming our waiting is a wholly passive activity. You know, it, like we're just sitting there waiting for God to do something. Like me waiting to pick up my kids from soccer practice. Just sitting there in the car with the engine running, keeping me warm, doom scrolling, uh, whatever your social media flavor of the day is. Doom scrolling Facebook until Jesus returns. But no, that's, uh, biblical waiting is never passive. It's never just sitting there doing nothing. We have a responsibility. 
In verse 1, we see that the first activity is prayer. Prayer for God's intervention. He says in these beautiful, picturesque phrases, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You can picture that in your minds. God, split open the skies and come to us. And that the mountains would tremble before you. And then I'm paraphrasing here. Take care of our enemies for us and let the nations quake before you. Isaiah is pleading for God to act, to protect them, and to be with them. You know, sometimes we can get so jaded to the mess of this world and the mess of our own lives that we can forget God's purpose and plan in the midst of it all. I know I've been there. I'm sure some of you are there right now. We can think that disappointment and conflict, whether it's in relationships, in in marriage, with your kids, with family, that you have to put up with through this holiday season, we can think that that's all there is to life, but Isaiah, in his prayer, hasn't forgotten that there's more, that there's hope. God's people may be in turmoil, but he is confident in a God who is powerful and present. We must never forget that we are called not to just accept the mess of this world, but to cry out to the Lord when we see and feel our needs keenly. To never grow tired of making that appeal in moments of trouble. The prayer of Isaiah is even more significant for us when you realize that what he was praying for wouldn't happen for 600 years. He's writing 600 years before God would truly rend the heavens and come down in Christ. He would not live to see the redemption he prayed for. But this didn't stop him. You know, the New Testament saint, uh, Simeon, who waited in the temple for the consolation of Jerusalem, uh, the coming of a savior, he was promised that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Messiah, but Isaiah did not get this promise. In fact, he died in the exile. His call was to cry to the Lord and remind the people to do the same. Brothers and sisters, you and I don't know God's timetable. We don't know his timetable for our lives, for the lives of those we love. Uh, There are plenty of television preachers that will love to tell you they know when Everything's going to happen, but they don't know what they're talking about. We don't know what his plan is or timetable is for the mission of the church and the world, but God knows all of this. And he calls on us to pray, to appeal to him for our needs and the needs of his people in this world as the chief expression of waiting on the Lord, trusting in his power to save. Don't grow tired of making your pleas to the Lord. The second activity associated with waiting is remembering. Remembering. Remembrance of God's past deliverance of his people. Isaiah continues his prayer in verse 3. After he has asked God to act on their behalf, he gives the basis for this request. He says, for when you did awesome things that we didn't expect, you came down And the mountains trembled before you. What he's doing is he's remembering God's past delivering activity to give the people confidence that he will again do the same. Um, This this phrase, 
the word for trembled there in Hebrew, it's only used one other place um, in the scripture. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 5, verse 5, and it's almost a direct quote uh, from that passage. It's when God did this mighty act of delivering his people from their greatest enemy um, under the leadership of the judge, Deborah. She's singing this song of praise to God for what he had just done. It uses the same image. Even the mountains trembled before the Lord. It's likely that Isaiah is intentionally pointing back to this event to remind them, see, see what God did back then? When God's people were oppressed for 20 years by the Canaanite armies, led by Sisera, the most brutal um, enemy that they had faced. But God routed them. He destroyed them. He removed their oppression, even though they had the military might, even though they had the chariots made of iron, which is like emphasized in this judge's passage. It's really about technological advantage. God delivered. God saved. What Isaiah is doing is helping the people remember what God had done in the past so that they would remember he would be faithful to them again, even though they couldn't see how. So that in their sin and sorrow, they would remember that God is one who hears his people's cries when they as a people turned back to him and trusted in his mercy. He acted. That's where we come to our theme verse for this message. Since ancient times, no one has heard of a God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You know, this cry is reflected in the song we've been learning as a congregation. Uh, we didn't sing it today, but we'll sing it again throughout this, in this Advent season. It says, is all creation groaning? It is. Talking about our present suffering. Is a new creation coming? Is that present wrapped up with hope for the future? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is God going to rend the heavens and come down to be with his people? He is. And then this wonderful phrase, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. You know, the call and response of this song is designed to get the whole church, all of us, affirming together God's promise to deliver and, and also affirming the goodness of remembering when he has in many ways, that is the function of our Christian worship each week, to remember God's delivering work in Christ Jesus on the cross and to help us wait for him or trust in him for the future. Remembrance is an Advent activity for it helps us keep faith in the waiting. You know, I recall my own family story of remembrance. We have many, and I've shared some of them with you. But I have another one to share um, of how God delivered and provided um, in our family lineage. My great-grandfather, uh, grand, excuse me, my great-grandfather on my mom's side, I'm pointing to her because my mom's sitting over there. Um, hi, mom. <laughs> um, he, he was a Finnish immigrant. Uh, he came over from, from Finland through Canada, and he worked in the copper or coal mines in Minnesota as a miner. It was a common job for Finnish immigrants. Um, but one day he was down at the bottom of a shaft waiting to take the lift up. And he felt a nudge on, on his heart all of a sudden, just go to the other side of the shaft. Go to the other side of the shaft. 
Literally immediately after he went, the other side collapsed, um, killing another miner who was there. There was a cave-in. You know, I don't know the story of that other miner. Um, and it was after that event that my great-grandfather said, you know what, family? We're moving on. <laughs> I'm not doing this work anymore. I'm moving on. It's not safe. But he was preserved. I don't know the story of that other miner and his family. I just know the story of my great-grandfather and how it was told to me as a kid and to other members of our family. What hearing that account does for us and did for me as a child was help me know that God has a purpose. He has a purpose for us. And he's faithful. Remember. Remember he's good. Advent is a call to remember past grace, to keep faith in the God of future grace. In our waiting, whether it's hard or, or easy, we cry out, not turning from our needs and the needs of others, but pouring them out to the Lord. And from the midst of our pain, we remember God's past faithfulness that we might learn to trust in him again. Let us not be passive in our Advent waiting, but active. After Isaiah reminds the people of God's faithfulness, his gaze in this prayer turns inward, back to the people, from a, from a holy God back to a struggling people, toward the people in their condition. And his words remind us that Advent waiting does more than call us to action. It also calls us to humility. Isaiah says to God, God, you know, you come to the help of those who gladly do what's right, who remember your ways. It's another way of saying your laws. Uh, ways and laws are, are kind of synonymous, used um, in exchange for one another in the Old Testament. Yet, he then reflects on the people in his day, and he says, but we, we continue to sin against your ways. So how can we be saved? In other words, are we too far gone for God's mercy? Uh, more literal translations say, in our sins we have been for a long time. And shall we be saved? It's this hint of a prayer, of an asking, are we too far gone for you, Lord? You know, I said earlier that part of our waiting in Advent is reflection. Well, reflection can be dangerous. If you take that time to sit and to think, you never know what's going to pop into your head. <laughs> because when we reflect on God's goodness and then look at ourselves, we inevitably see a gulf between the two, if we're truly honest. God's law, his ways, they serve as a mirror for us into which we look and there see his glory and perfection and our imperfection. And it can be terrifying when we're honest. That's why the first step in humility is to acknowledge and repent of sin. Advent's been a season that has been celebrated the church from the beginning. That's one reason why I love it so much. Even though the word Advent isn't, even in, isn't in the Bible, the church has been celebrating it from the inception of the church. Um, but it's always been associated with the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, that's interesting. We don't talk much about John the Baptist. We know he was this weird guy who was out in the desert wearing camel hair and eating locusts and honey, kind of crazy, preaching this gospel of repentance and dipping people in the Jordan River. Uh, but that's all we kind of think about. But it's fitting that Advent reflects on John the Baptist because his job was to prepare the people for their Savior to come. 
What's notable about John, though, is how similar his message is to that of Isaiah in our passage. Luke 3 records the nature of John's ministry. He called on people to come out to the Jordan River and be baptized as a sign of repentance from sin, that they were turning back to the Lord. But his message to the crowds coming to to him was not gentle. Um, He kind of screamed. It was brutal. He said to them in, in Luke 3, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You almost picture the guy on the street corner down in D.C. But then he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What he means there is that they were arrogant about their national identity but in their hearts and lives were not living as God's children. So he called them to humility and to lives that produced change in keeping with a repentant heart. Their lives needed to testify to the truth of their relationship with God more than their national identity. The people asked him, hearing these hard words, what are we gonna do, what what shall we do? And it's telling how he responded to them. He didn't say, well, separate yourselves from the world more. He didn't say, oh, just stop swearing, stop drinking, or anything related to their private lives. He wasn't dealing with personal holiness. These are matters of concern for Christians, and and rightly so. But he was laser-focused on something even more critical. He said, anyone who has two shirts must give to the one who has none. And any who have food must do the same. Tax collectors don't swindle people, but only collect what's owed. Soldiers don't accuse people falsely, gossip and slander, and be content with your pay. John calls on them to display the life of God's kingdom in their generous love toward one another and toward the poor, and by their refusal to take advantage of anyone. It's like what Isaiah says when he calls even the people's righteous deeds filthy rags. In Isaiah's day and in Jeremiah's day, the people were known for personal holiness, but utter disregard for the needs around them and even oppression of the poor and the weak. Personal piety and outward neglect and oppression. They looked down on their neighbor. So according to Isaiah, as according to John, their personal holiness was actually the epitome of hypocrisy and worse than having no holiness at all. And that word filthy rags there, it's actually a vulgar term which I will not define from the pulpit in mixed company except to say that filthy rags doesn't do it justice. Google search it, not now but later. Filthy rags in Isaiah 64, what does it mean? Righteousness, filthy rags. Because I'm only concerned about myself and not my neighbor. What this tells us is that the humility which this Advent season develops in us is not real unless it changes our relationships with one another. As we see our sin and our need of grace, we no longer sit in judgment of our neighbors, but give ourselves for them in loving service. We no longer rest 
or, or wait in what is to our credit in this world, but rest in the goodness of God who provides redemption. Fleming Rutledge, an Anglican theologian and my favorite writer on the subject of Advent, she wrote, reflecting on this passage, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Do not be afraid, church, of confessing your sin to the Lord. He already knows it all, and he promises to be faithful to you anyway. Let the Advent season be a season when you overcome your fear of seeing the darkness within and bringing it honestly to the Lord with the plea that he would bring change and hope. But you know, Isaiah doesn't merely reflect on the sinfulness of God's people, but their suffering as well. In verses 6 and 7, Isaiah writes that the people are shriveling up like a leaf and the wind of their sins is sweeping them away. It's describing an experience of suffering and they feel that God has abandoned them. When you and I experience suffering, we can feel like this as well. And that's one reason I love Old Testament poetry because it connects so much with our life experience. Many come to faith hoping and expecting that believing in Jesus will make life easier and fix all of our problems. But then go on to discover that not only is sin still hard, but we still suffer. We experience sickness, we encounter death, and we can still struggle with despair and not everything goes our way and we wonder, has God abandoned us? Is he still with me? Is the Lord deaf? psalmist asks that question too. These are Advent questions and okay to ask. It's so important for us to recognize the apparent gulf that exists between these words and the confidence that Isaiah expressed just a few sentences earlier. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And now you have hidden your face from us. My hope is that you would hear in these words the invitation to be honest with one another and honest with the Lord this Advent. There can be such a pressure to put a good face on things over the holidays, to fake it till you make it, and get into the festive spirit, even if it feels inauthentic. But Isaiah says no, no. Waiting is hard because in our waiting we suffer. Becoming overwhelmed by our sin and our suffering, and we ask ourselves, has God abandoned us? Can we be saved? If this is you, you're welcome here, and I want you to know that. We're not going to push you to feel a festivity or a joy that you don't experience, but by engaging with the sorrow and the darkness, you will be able to experience joy more fully later. Take an inventory of the darkness it's not weak faith to admit such doubt and struggle, for it is never weakness to admit the truth. Some of you, I know, have been waiting a long time in the dark of struggle with God's will and your sorrow, and it's hard to hope. God's word sees you. You know, there's this wonderful parable that Jesus offers in Mark 13. 
He's telling the disciples about the suffering that they're going to endure when he goes away. So he tells them this little story in just a couple verses about how they are to live until he comes again in glory. He said to them, it's, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge. Each has their assigned task. And then he tells the one at the door to keep watch. And he takes this story and turns to them and he says, therefore keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, keep watch. Note that in this parable, at least, Jesus doesn't answer all of their questions about why that we tend to ask. Why they suffer, why he's going away. But the little parable leaves us with a promise that he's coming back. As Fleming Rutledge again says, all we know is that there's this rumor, this hope, this expectation that the master of the house is coming back. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming. Live with watchfulness and wait in trust for him. As we move towards the conclusion of this passage, I'm so glad Isaiah's prayer doesn't end with verse 7. That would truly be darkness. Advent in many ways is like entering a long, dark tunnel where you can barely get a glimpse of light and hope at the end. But that's where he leaves us, with hope. With the source of hope, and it's bound up in these wonderful words, and these are the last words I want to reflect on. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. And then he asks for forgiveness and mercy. But this statement, switching gears from referring to God as the Lord and moving to talking about him as Father, it makes all the difference in the world. It changes the posture of the entire prayer and reminds us for whom Isaiah prays. We are the people that Isaiah is praying for. That the God we wait for is no distant ruler or self-seeking king, but he is our dear heavenly father. There is a difference between a king or a boss making you a promise and a father making you a promise, isn't there? I don't know what your experience is with your own fathers, but that's the image that's going, that he's going for here in this prayer. Bosses are supposed to ultimately have the best interests of themselves and their companies in mind. Their generosity will only go so far, and then they'll have to make decisions that are for the best interests of the organization. But a father, he doesn't think economically. A father gives. He gives irrationally. He gives generously. Like the father of the prodigal son, who though deserted, ridiculed, and abandoned by his own dear loved son, he waits for us and runs to us when we come back to him. That's what our heavenly father does for us. For everything that is necessary to secure our hope in the midst of our waiting has already been done in Christ by him. It is he who sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to us. He has already rent the heavens and come down, not to conquer us by his might, but by his love. Jesus laying down his life to secure the forgiveness and redemption Isaiah 
prayed for 600 years before it came. You know, in Advent, we both look back to Christ's coming at Christmas, and we look forward, reminded of how he has come to us and delivered us, but looking forward to how he will come again to let us unwrap the gifts of his grace in full and experience full joy with him face to face. But for now, in the present, we live in the in-between times where we still struggle with sin and suffering, where we still struggle to wait. Church, I encourage you this year, don't rush Christmas. In this Advent season, take time to reflect to cry out to the Lord, to take an inventory of the darkness within and without, to bring it to him, to remember his past faithfulness to you, and then ask him to help you wait faithfully until the day when we get to unwrap the gift of his grace in full when we see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for the grace that you give us in Christ Jesus. It is a gift that we cannot fathom or plumb the depths of. But help us to wait, to experience it in full, to remember that there is no greater gift than what you have already given, and there is no greater hope than what you have promised. Our dear Heavenly Father, amen.